You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to Lori Kaikina. She's an engineer by training, and it was six months ago that Kaikina was hired to take over from Andrew Robbins as head of Honolulu's rail project. She's now worked under three mayors as director of the Department of Design and Construction under Mayor Peter Carlisle and as director of environmental services under Mayor Kirk Caldwell. And now with Mayor Rick Blangiardi as she segued into this heart position just as we move toward the last critical final leg through the urban core. So there was criticism in the beginning because I don't have transit experience, but I did ask, just give me a chance to see if I can help make a positive difference. And what experience I'm bringing from ENV, right, like you mentioned, I have a lot of um, construction contracts, infrastructure relocation experience that we had to do for ENV. Our program was massive. It was a $5 billion program, you know, consent decree, and all of our hundreds of deadlines, we were on time, on budget. That's what experience I'd like to bring to heart. So what we have accomplished within the six months, which I am very proud of, I didn't realize how big of a deal it was until I had meeting last week with my staff um, and two of our big consultants. We were able to finish the designs in areas two through six, that's Evalade to Ala Moana, on the utility designs within six months, and Hart's been trying to do that for 10 years. And so we got all of the designs done. We still need to do Dillingham, but for areas two through six, 100% designs done, and all of the packages but four have been approved by the city. And we're expecting this week to have the last city department approve those last packages. So I am proud of the team for doing that. And the consultants and our staff were sharing, you don't understand what a morale builder this is. People work so hard, so hard to get things done. And then my relationships with the city, the approval process went much quicker than anticipated. Our consultants were budgeting three to six months and they, the approvals came within two weeks, sometimes even two days. So the city departments and even the third-party utilities have been phenomenal, very supportive of us. I know when you came in, you also took some flack for canceling some contracts and letting go of staff. Um, I was told that you don't really have a quality control office anymore. You know, How does that work now? So when we talk to our Project management oversight consultant, they're hired by the FTA to over, they're our watchdogs. And when I questioned them, what exactly do you feel is the QA, QC responsibility? And, you know, they, they forwarded me to this um, document that the FTA put out, and they said, please take a look at this. But even they stressed that the QA, QC that we had was not, um, as effective as it could be. It wasn't bringing the quality control, quality assurance that we needed. I mean, you know, we, it's been highly publicized, the wheel rail interface, the frog issue, that wasn't identified. We have other issues that were not identified. So we need to bring, we need to step up that group. So we are interviewing some candidates right now. We have, in fact, we have one today and hopefully we find someone that understands the FTA requirements and can help us to elevate that section of our, our company. Okay, and backing up, so QAQC is what? A quality assurance, quality control? Correct. And as far as uh, then the uh, the frogs, you mentioned that those are the issues with the, the tracks and the wheels not quite aligning. Correct. So so that's a concern, a red flag for you. Yes. yes. Any Any update there? Uh, are, are we closer oh, to sure. negotiating so we, that? We did hire a third-party consultant, TTCI, and they are doing their analysis right now. What's maximum speed we can do through the double crossovers, what we refer to as the frogs, and their report comes back in August. Now, if their report comes back negative, that we can only go, let's say, 20 miles per hour through the frogs, that's not ideal for us more than likely we will have to tear out those frogs, um, generate, create new ones, manufacture new ones in the mail and bring them here and replace. And that could take from a year to two years. So that's a delay on the uh, what people have been calling interim opening. 
um, all the way up to the stadium. If, however, their analysis comes back positive that we're good to go 40 to 50 miles per hour, then we're uh, working closely with Hitachi to replace the wheels. And then we could do our testing. And if everything goes good in our trial running, which is 90 days without any hitches, we could possibly still hand this over to the city. And who's going to pick up the tab for that? So we still need to negotiate that with Hitachi. We need to look at the contract documents, who was responsible for what. So that hasn't been determined. I'm trying to find the technical solution first, get that done, and then we'll work out the commercial site after that. And where are we at on the interim service? If the, that TTCI report, which comes back in August, is positive, we're thinking we can get the trial running started maybe early of next year, and if there's 90 days of no glitches, we can hand this over to the city second quarter of next year, maybe the April-May time frame. And then you are also scheduled to go up to Washington, D.C. to meet with the, uh, with the feds uh, on our recovery plan. Who else going and, and what's the latest? Sure. So we're still trying to schedule that meeting. And who would be going is myself, Mayor, and Tommy Waters, Council Chair. And Mayor mentioned at council a couple of weeks ago that it's more going to be a meet and greet, kind of a temperature check, versus having a full-blown plan ready to submit to them. There are some COVID-related issues, so that's why we're having difficulties scheduling that meeting. And as far as what you can share right now about uh, other construction updates, how are we doing on the airport leg? Uh, and then uh, also the Dillingham issues. So the airport leg, that project is about 84% complete. They, we're having issues in the lagoon area, YY Loop. We're working with HECO diligently because there's requirements that we need to meet to satisfy um, uh, their their needs. And But that's why if you look, there's a gap in the columns and the guideway right in that area. So we're hoping we can get some of those things taken care of shortly with HECO. They have been terrific too, trying to um, find scenarios, ways to help us out. And the stations, unfortunately that's a little bit behind. The stations are maybe each about 34% complete. And the latest schedule from STG has it for the third quarter of next year to be complete. Those are the airport stations? Correct. So what is the last station that we've got completed? The stadium. What about the Malka shift on, sure. on Dillingham? I, I know you folks have been negotiating with Kamehameha Schools uh, and the University of Hawaii because they're you know the larger property owners along that route. Yes, so the Malka shift, so as I mentioned earlier, areas two through six, the utilities are complete. Dillingham is area one. And the delay on that was we were trying to fi- find a way to... It, it's a it's a spaghetti noodle mess, as I've been saying, under there. The utilities are all over the place. It is tight. So we did make the decision to do the Malka shift where the guideway itself is going to move to the Malka side of Dillingham. So we won't have to put columns within Dillingham and have to relocate those utilities. We are also working with HECO so that we don't have to underground their major 138 kV line on the Makai side. We still need to do the Malka side. And as you mentioned, the properties that are going to be affected is owned by Kamehameha Schools and UH. And both entities, too, they have been so terrific, um, just helping us out as best they can. HCC has... Uh, valid concerns about noise and vibration because we'll be that much closer to existing buildings. So we are procuring a study to do noise and vibration so that we can help mitigate any of their concerns. But the Malka shift, the Dillingham uh, city, um, the Dillingham utility relocation design package will not be done until June of next year, but I'm working very closely with our design consultant AECOM to see if they can expedite that and get that done by the end of this year, but it's going to be tight. Well, we saw the traffic snarls, you know, when the uh, contractor there on the freeway hit the 42-inch water main, and we don't want to see anything like that happen on Dillingham because it's 
it's going to be a real mess. It will be. That 42-inch main is so critical. As Director Lau has been explaining, it feeds all of downtown, all of Waikiki. In fact, when ENV was doing its own project right there on Waikamilo, we were out to bid. And when Ernie Lau saw what our designs were going to be, his staff approved it. But he, he halted us and he said, no, no, you folks need to relocate this 42-inch main because it is so critical. So it did add a million dollars in six months to our project, but I understood the criticality of what he's talking about. You can't shut down Waikiki and downtown by not providing water to them. So. You know, when you talked about uh, doing interviews for uh, consultants, you know, I know there was a flap over Colleen Hanabusa's contract and also the second lobbyist contract with Dyer. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism flying and concern about the board chair, the heart chair, and, and some of the decisions that were made and the votes that were taken. Uh, you know, what do you want to tell the public just about some of these charges that have been levied? For the charges against Chair Martin, I do believe the Ethics Commission, he cleared that um, a while ago with them that there was no conflict. But other than that, I, I prefer not to make any comment on the, the issue. And uh, w- what about the the, the contracts for uh, Colleen Hanabusa? The emails that have come to light, you know, seem to indicate that there might have been a fix. No, there wasn't a fix. We did check with Corporation Council, and there was no procurement violation, according to them. We knew, or the Heart Board knew what skill set they wanted. There were some issues with quorum and voting, extension of the GET, TAT, and releasing of the federal funds. So there were specific things that they needed done, and they knew what the skill set was. So when the procurement was put together, that's what they were honing in on. But, you know, other than that, I, I prefer not to comment. That was Lori Kaikina, interim head of the Honolulu Rail Project, who we spoke with earlier this morning. This weekend, city crews rescued canoe paddlers whose vessels flipped off Sand Island. They also airlifted a California woman after she slipped and broke her ankle at Manoa Falls Trail. Such 911 calls are on the rise as more people are getting back out hiking and into ocean sports in this latest phase of the pandemic. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning. Now, the city wants to draw attention to this. Yes, exactly. Uh, By all means, we've been getting a lot of uh, press releases about more rescues happening. And just to note, there was also uh, two hikers that were rescued both on Friday. Uh, one had to be airlifted out of Cocoa Head uh, Crater Trail, uh, and that was in Sailor, I believe. And we are very much outpacing uh, the rescue calls for the first six months uh, in 2019, pre-pandemic times. Uh, rescue calls are going up, and you may people may think, Maybe it's mostly visitors, and there are a lot of visitors getting rescued, but HFD also wanted to note that it's also residents, and so they wanted to offer some safe hiking safety tips, uh, like being prepared, going into uh, a trail, knowing where that trail is and where it leads to, assessing your capabilities as a hiker, maybe travel in pairs so that you can help someone else out, stay hydrated, have a full uh, charge on your cell phone, things like that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I know folks are out and about now, uh, you know, and it is getting crowded in Waikiki. The tourists are looking for stuff to do. Yeah, exactly. And hiking is uh, hiking is a great uh, outdoor activity. It's, I mean, free for a lot of uh, these trails and whatnot. And uh, I spoke with Aaron Lowe. He's a trail specialist with the Na Alaheli program with the DLNR. And in my story, he says it's great that, you know, it's the whole point of you know, getting people out on the trails, pe- people enjoying the great outdoors. I mean, we've been cooped up in our houses for about a year, uh, but he did offer some advice, especially with, you know, staying on the trails was a very important one. Uh, also, uh, you know, not relying on third-party uh, websites. They may look good. They may have uh, great photos and great layouts, and he's 
he says that most of the time it's uh, not well managed, it's not updated as much, and he had to say this. Get information about the trail, do some research. Check out our website, hawaiitrails.hawaii.gov. It is the official trail website uh, for the state, so the information you're going to get on that website is the most up-to-date information about the trails you can find on the Internet. All other sources are out of our control and oftentimes are very misleading and not accurate and out of date. Again, hawaiitrails.hawaii.gov is the website. And uh, yes, most up-to-date website that you can get about these trails and the conditions. And also they'll let you know of any warnings uh, if there's something wrong with the trails like falling rocks or something that's blocking or obstructing it. Yeah, no, I usually always check the city's beach safety website just because if I'm going out, I want to kind of know what's happening. I check Surf News Network to figure out what, what are the, you know, the what's the surf like? What are the winds? Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, mainly just do your research, check uh, the uh, cross check your information on various websites, kind of get a good idea. And as always, when in doubt, don't go out, you know. Yeah, and I'm always really in awe of, uh, you know, the uh, HFD rescue crews because, you know, they're out there. They're up in the helicopters. They're out in the, you know, the the, the rough seas, yeah. you know, trying to rescue people. Right. Yeah. And uh, again, HFD uh, made it very clear that they don't distinguish who gets rescued. They're going to respond to any call, uh, whether it's a visitor or a resident. And uh, they also gave us a little bit of insight as far as how uh, they respond to these rescue calls as well. So these local uh localized uh, stations, your neighborhood station, will respond to the nearest rescue call first, and then they'll be there to assess the scene and everything else, and then they'll probably call uh, rescue the rescue teams. And we have two rescue teams for all of Oahu, uh, and they will get assistance. Uh, but for also, the, on the flip side of the coin, anecdotally, there is also um, people interested interested people interested in joining uh, the rescue crews and they have to do their experience uh, within the fire station as well and they'll have to respond and they'll get experience this way uh, I spoke to Captain Kalai Miller uh, he says anecdotally around five years to train someone for a rescue crew and he had this to say we want to make sure somebody comes out of recruit class knowing what they're doing they spent time on their own truck that they're assigned to, whether it's an engine or ladder, getting good at, at that job first, and then you know getting experience in, in doing the medical calls that is over 80% of what we um, respond to on a daily basis throughout the fire department. And so there's a lot that takes to building them up to be ready to be assigned to a rescue company. And so we're real serious about it, and it's not a quick path. And we want to make sure that we get the right individuals that are in it for the long haul and capable of doing it, not only physically, but, you know, the mental task as well. Being a fireman already is, it's one collar is white and one collar is blue. You know, you got to be able to think and you got to be able to perform tasks at the same time. And so um, that's the kind of guys we're looking for, in particular, men and women, to be on our rescue squads. And it takes at least two years to uh, get all the proper certifications, but... Obviously, the process is a very long and challenging one as well. Right, and a lot of those are, are really qualified watermen. Uh, you know, lifeguards are out there, and and I believe uh, in July the city starts their new uh, uh, lifeguard time schedule. Right, they're on sunrise, sunrise to sunset. To sunset. Yeah, so we'll see, you know, how that works. But thanks so much, Casey. Stay safe out there. Yes, that was HPR's Casey Harlow. To read his stories, head to HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Support for HPR comes from Malama Ola Health Services on Oahu, offering hospice and palliative care founded by physicians who, with their staff, are dedicated to providing patients and their families with individualized care. MalamaOlaCares.com. 
what's one of the most important parts of Amazon that you don't even know you're using. It's Amazon Web Services, the business that hosts 30% of the cloud computing market, everything from Netflix to Zoom to thousands of other companies, making it a target for antitrust action. So, you know, what we need to be doing is not yelling at Amazon to play nice, it's changing the rules. AWS in our series, The Prime Effect. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through mid-July. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Honolulu Civil Beat's reality check today highlights the disparity over vacation, uh, vaccination rates according to zip codes. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Catherine. You know, I just thought it was so fascinating when the Department of Health released that map according to zip codes. Yeah, it's it's wonderful data. It's uh, you know it's great to see you know what's happening on our islands. And my article focused on Oahu, but they actually have this data for you know statewide. And so I encourage people listening to go check it out later. You can see um, an interactive map that shows you know how vaccination rates compare on different parts of the island. And what I found was that the North Shore and West Oahu um, had a lot of neighborhoods where um, vaccination rates were lagging significantly behind. Yeah, and uh, it you know you, you kind of wonder what's up, what's happening in that community. Why is that? Yeah, well, it's really a multifaceted problem. So one of the things to keep in mind is, first of all, vaccines have been available to the general public, so 16 and up, since uh, mid-April. So there were, of course, tons of people who were waiting anxiously, trying to get them and and rushed to get them as soon as they were available. And uh, now, statewide, there's a vaccination rate of about of 57%. Um, but there are communities who still haven't gotten it, and it's for a lot of reasons. So, of course, you know, we have had done some polls that show that uh, 9% or 12% of the community just doesn't want the vaccine at all. Um, but there's also uh, thousands of people um, who might be open to the vaccine or on the fence, but they need more education about it or they just don't have access and so one thing that was pointed out to me was that you know I read a lot about Kalihi and the challenges that Kalihi has had with COVID but one thing that is great about Kalihi is there's actually a lot of different healthcare um, options in that area you can walk from a public housing complex to Kukua Kalihi Valley Comprehensive Health Services or you can go to there's actually a a second um, Kalihi Palama um, Community Health Center there Um, there's also you know private hospitals and so some other parts of the island they don't have the same access to health care generally and so what we're seeing now I'm told reflects existing health care disparities that were here uh, prior to the pandemic. Yeah but there were some communities on the North Shore that really had high rates. Hola I think right? Yes, and so that was actually really interesting because when I first started looking into the story, Ha'ula had a pretty low rate. And um, one thing that was kind of interesting was that um, it changed. And so, you know, this is an interactive map that updates when there is new data. And and the state and its partners and and private hospitals and and nonprofits, they have all been doing this really big concerted effort to try to increase outreach. And so they've been doing outreach in Ha'ula. And it looks like it's working, I think. And so, um, you know, this is something where they're, they're, they want to um, have this data on disparities so they know where to put their efforts, but it's not static. It's, you know, it's not inevitable that the North Shore and West Oahu will have lower than average rates of vaccination. That can completely change if there is more, um, you know, efforts to provide them with more access or education or whatever is needed to, to bring that up. Now, I know lots of businesses were encouraging their employees to get vaccinated. Does that help? Yeah, 
Um, well, that was really interesting. I talked to somebody who works at Department of Health who was saying how, you know, some companies invited them to do vaccination events. And in some instances when they went, you know, just a handful of people showed up. And in one case, she found that actually people hadn't gotten time off um, necessarily. And um, I think what, what a lot of people are concerned about is time off, not just to get the vaccine, but also time off afterwards if they have, an, uh, you know, an adverse reaction. Like some people have fever for a couple of days. There's temporary... Um, reactions that people can get that, you know, they recover from quickly, but it may require a day or two off. And, you know, especially with this difficult year with the pandemic where people, you know, were needing some more um, work and, and wanting more hours, I think that that can be a concern, especially for single parents and people who have caregiving responsibilities. Now, I don't know where we're at as far as the vaccination rates, because I know the governor wanted us to reach 70 percent and he doubted that we were going to reach that, um, you know, uh, early on. But, uh, yeah, do, do you know where we're at with that? Yeah, so we're at 57% um, uh, statewide. Um, but, uh, you know, in some parts of uh, the island, there's fewer than 35% vaccinated. And in other parts, there's more than 70%. So there are neighborhoods that have exceeded that 70% threshold. And one thing that, you know, was interesting about reporting this was you don't need to convince people who are adamantly against the vaccine to get it in order for us to reach that threshold. There's a bunch of other barriers that you can address in order for us to, to reach that. And there's a lot of people working on trying to make that happen. Yeah. And we did have a listener call in to say that he talked to someone who was unvaccinated and managed to convince him to go down and get his shot. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, what, uh, you know, what impacts people. But uh, thanks yeah. so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Looking for a summer read? Well, Sarah Ackerman has always been drawn to December 7th. Uh, and, you know, it might be because her birthday is the day before. I don't know. Her latest book, Radar Girls, hits the shelves in July. Her previous book, The Lieutenant's Nurse, came out in 2019 and is set against the backdrop of World War II. Ackerman draws from family stories and finding the connection with forgotten wartime sites. She shared that she never planned on writing historical novels. I sort of stumbled on it. It wasn't my intention to write World War II Hawaii historical novels, but I had written, I got interested in writing novels, and I had written a few novels, and I hadn't found an agent or a publisher. My grandparents were in Honoka during the war, and my grandpa was a principal, my grandma was a teacher, and they had all the soldiers, the Marines up there at Camp Tarawa during the war, and a lot of them were, they would always stay at my grandparents' house, and, you know, it was, she always talked about it. So then they moved here after the war, and they lived out in Wailua and Haleiwa, and um, I just always heard her stories. And so she always talked about this lion that the Marines had that was their, mas their mascot. And I thought, you know, that would make a really neat story. And so I decided I would write a, a book with kind of focused around this lion to a certain degree. Um, and tell it from a child's, a, a young girl's point of view, like my mother, and also from a woman um, who, like, who was kind of my grandmother in my mind. And so that's what started it all. And then um, when you have a publishing deal with a big publisher, they often want you to stick to the same genre. And so I had, the, they wanted another one. So I wrote another one and then another one. <laughs> so I actually just finished my fifth one which is um, also World War II, but it's a dual timeline, so then it's 65 as well. Okay, and so, it, that has yet to be published? Yeah, that one I just finished the other day, the first draft, so okay. that'll probably come out next summer. All right, mm -hmm. so tell us about this new book. So this book is, it's about, again, the Women's Area Defense, which the acronym is WARD, and that was, it was a top-secret program set up in Hawaii right after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So this was just, you know, in December, they started recruiting these women kind of, in a, you know, secretly. Um, and that, at that point, radar was still in its infancy, although we know that it did work, you know, when the Japanese planes were flying in, we, we picked them up from the Opana radar station. But 
nothing happened with that information because they didn't really know what to do with it and they thought it was the American planes. But anyway, so these, the women were replacing males in the war zone for the first time. And they're, they're kind of like air traffic controllers. So they tracked the planes and they guided pilots, you know, because at that point everything was dark. They guided pilots into um, the blacked out the airstrips. And um, at that point, our airspace, you know, we were still under the threat of, of invasion. Everyone thought we were going to be invaded. And we did have another, you know, another attempt at bombing us. So that was their job. And the book is about, it's fictional characters based on real characters. Tell us about the research that you did as you were writing this. Mm -hmm. I have building, like it, it was, it's helpful to have these other books to, to build on because there's just so much involved in any Pearl Harbor story. But um, there was a book called The Shuffleboard Pilots, which was written by some of these, these wards. And it had, it was just full of information. And I had tried to reach a couple wards. You know, there's not many remaining alive still. Um, but I wasn't able to actually speak to any. And then it was also COVID, so I couldn't come over here because I was on the Big Island. But um, this book was very helpful. It, it had everything, stories. And then I have a couple other Pearl Harbor books that I have from past, past research. And then I, I did go to Pearl Harbor. I like to go to Pearl Harbor every time, you know, I'm writing a book, even though I've been there a bunch of times, because it always, you just get, a, you know, the feeling kind of helps with the setting and all of that. So the research is always, takes me usually a couple months before I start a book where I have it brewing in my head. And I knew that I wanted to start it. My character lives out in Mokalaia. She works as a horse trainer out at the ranch and she's, you know, she doesn't really think she's anything special, but she gets recruited and um, it changes her life, obviously, as it did for everybody. But I knew I wanted to start it out there. So the book kind of takes place between Mokalaia or Wailua and Fort Shafter is where the Oahu wards were stationed. They ended up having um, wards on each island, but this one is based on the Oahu one. And, you know, you live out there on the North Shore now. What's that like as you uh, create these stories, you know, in that setting? Yeah, you know, I spend a lot of time up at Kahuku Point, which is fascinating because I didn't even realize. I knew that there was, you know, some military presence out there, but Recently, I found this old map of all these runways right along between Turtle Bay and Marconi, huge runways. It was a huge, hopeful, you know, they had a chapel, they had everything. And you go hiking back there and you find old bunkers and, you know, there's still so much out there. And, I, and then you hear stories and, um, and then at Turtle Bay, you can see they have a bunker there out on the beach, kind of booked by Cavella Bay a little pillbox that is they have a commemorative plaque for the opana radar station which was was up above on the hill there's a lot out there i love it i love it and it's funny because i was not a history buff or a good history student when i was younger but i think it you know you do get a little more interested i think in in your family history when you get older i just think that's natural i was just at my mom's class reunion sitting with a bunch of older people and you ask them you know where were you on December 7th and they all have these really cool stories and such vivid memories. Your character in Radar Girls is Daisy Wilder who you say mm -hmm. prefers the company of horses to people <laughs> and you know when you're out there uh, on the North Shore you do have those wonderful horses. Yeah I always try to include animals in all my books. I love animals. I just feel like for some reason they just always worked their way into my stories you know back then and I learned again I didn't realize you know, there was a racetrack in Kailua and you know how I knew about polo but Pilani Park and there's just a lot of history that we just don't even know about or I didn't learn about it when I was in school and now they all become the backdrop for your stories yeah I mean, any advice that you might have to folks who are interested? Because like you said, you didn't really start out to do historical novels. No, I didn't. I think it's just a matter of um, just having passion for it. Like, it's challenging, and it was it's a long road. I knew it was going to be a long road when I set out to write it, because I was like, I was a public school teacher and counselor, and then, and then I taught online, and then just a series of, series of events I kind of finally had time to work on a book and 
you know, my first book, like I said, the first three did not get me an agent. They're still unpublished. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gave myself a 10-year kind of plan to, to get published. So it took me five years before I was able to find an agent and get a book deal. And then my other goal was to become a New York Times bestseller, which I haven't gotten there yet. That was my 10-year goal. So this summer, I think, will be the <laughs> 10 years. So it's, I think it's just important to have goals and, and kind of know what you want. Do, do you want to self-publish or do you want to have a traditional publishing deal where, you know, your book is distributed through the normal means and bookstores and that kind of thing? We've been hearing from Hawaii author Sarah Ackerman. Her latest book, Radar Girls, will be available on July 27th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Legacy of Life Hawaii, with more than 30 years of saving and restoring lives in Hawaii through organ and tissue donation. Organ donor registration is available at the DMV or at legacyoflifehawaii.org. Carlos Santana, Linda Ronstadt, Herb Alpert, all music legends, and we've talked to every one of them here on HPR. I'm Dave Lawrence, inviting you to go behind the scenes of those chats and more in On the Road with Off the Road, a virtual talk story and Q&A event where you get to ask the questions, your favorite conversations, and musical performances. It's Saturday, July 10th at 10 a.m. Reserve your spot now at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Maui Arts and Cultural Center. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares that we are getting closer to discovering when the first-ever stars were formed in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and wouldn't you know, we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars and Venus, which can both be seen in the west after sunset. Mars will be setting around 9.20 p.m., the moon this week will begin to wane, and over the next week or so, conditions for stargazing will become excellent. And I understand this week we've got a report on some of the earliest stars? Yeah, one of astronomy's most enduring mysteries is that of the first stars. When did the first stars form? How did they form, and why? An enormous international effort using observatories around the world has brought us a little closer to understanding the mystery of the first stars. Data gathered in this gargantuan effort indicates that the first stars ignited in a period around 250 to 350 million years after the Big Bang. This era is known as the Cosmic Dawn, when light from young stars began to flood into the primordial darkness of the early universe. And I'm guessing looking this deeply into the universe requires big telescopes here on Earth or in space? Both, actually. Both ground and space-based telescopes were used. But in terms of the ground-based ones, we have the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, ALMA, the Very Large Telescope, and the Gemini South Telescope, all located in Chile, as well as the Twin Keck Telescopes atop Mauna Kea. And tell us about the galaxies that have these stars. They've got to be at the limit of what we can possibly observe. They Right now they are, yeah, but with a new generation of ground and space-based telescopes coming online over the next few years, including NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, these objects will be within reach for further study using brand new instruments. How about the TMT? Will that thing be useful if they ever build it? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of cool, though, because we're made of star stuff, huh? So this is looking back into our past. 
It is indeed. As you mentioned, we are made from star stuff. The oxygen we breathe, the iron in our blood, the calcium in our bones, all of it was born in the blazing hearts of stars. When those early stars died, they cast that material out into the universe where it went on to form new stars, new planets, and new life. We are the direct descendants of those stars, and they are now telling us their story through science. Another fascinating episode of Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. The Honolulu Police Department and Oahu prosecutors are turning their focus to address illegal racing on Oahu's roadways. This comes after the recent shooting death of a 19-year-old man on Kalihi Street following an alleged freeway race. It also raises questions about what alternatives are available for locals to safely indulge in the urge to drive fast. The conversations Russell Subiano took the opportunity to find out. That's some of the sound from the Aloha Stadium parking lot yesterday, where the Hawaii region of the Sports Car Club of America, the SCCA, held its last solo autocross race of the 2021 season. I first heard the distinctive sounds of the growling exhausts and screeching tires last month as I was making a mundane trip to the grocery store across the street. I was caught off guard because you don't see much advertising for auto racing on Oahu today. And that's because the island's only dedicated motorsports venue, the Hawaii Raceway Park in Kapolei, was shut down over 14 years ago. In fact, Oahu is the only major Hawaiian island without a racetrack. My name is Sean Bacaro. I'm from Kaneohe. All right. And what, what kind of car do you drive, Sean? It's a 2013 FRS. All right. And we're, we're sitting in, what, what's the official word? Is this the staging area for racers? Uh, it's called the grid. The grid. And this is where all the cars kind of hang out and wait for their turn? Right, so they, they come here, they prep, you know, they get mentally prepared, and then um, we have a worker here that calls cars one by one to line up at the start. Am I messing up your mental preparation? No, no, no not at all. <laughs> you get a nice good adrenaline rush when you're racing through the course. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. What's your favorite part about racing? You know, you don't get to do this on the streets, right? Uh, legally. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, this is where we like to blow off steam, really, and just go out, go all out. Uh, it's fairly safe. You hit a cone, it's not, not really a big deal most of the time. So it's just a way to release some steam and have fun. If you've never been to a race, it's a large undertaking. From securing the venue, to organizing the racers, to designing the course, to keeping track of the times, I talked with Joey Batista, SCCA Hawaii Region's Chief of Registration, about what's involved with putting together the monthly events. How do you guys design the track? Who puts up the cones? Who does the measurements? Everyone that races actually has a specific duty. We are all volunteers. We all technically have different skill sets. After a certain amount of years of experience, we actually have someone that is a, we have different chiefs for different responsibilities and they have their crews to do certain things. So we do have a, a chief of course design and then we have a track setup crew in the morning. So we have now a bunch of people, like three or four people, including the chief of course design that sets up a course and designs it. And then our safety steward, uh, one of our chief of safety or one of the other people, they, as we're setting up the course every morning, they're the first ones here usually to set up. Chief of safety works with the, the chief of course design and they go through it and they make sure that we have specific safety rules that we have to follow. And that's a national type thing. So we have rules, we follow those things and we just adjust it as we need to. Does the course change from event to event? Every month is a different one. And sometimes we'll recycle them at some point with small little changes. So, But at that point, no one remembers them because we race once a month. So it's not like it's a constant thing. And on average, how many racers do you see come through? Pre-COVID, we were seeing approximately, I would say, anywhere between 95 and 110 participants. This is not uh, including spectators, but and that's including also our junior cart program that's on hold for now because of COVID. But we had about nine 
children under the age uh, from anywhere between I think it's around eight or nine to all the way to about uh, 16 or 17 that we're doing the cart program so that's including them you know currently with COVID we've actually limited our, our amount of people just to make it more manageable for us to keep our protocols uh, within check and hopefully once we clear all the tiers that we can actually go back to our normal thing but right now we're seeing about 75 and that's pretty much pretty good for your junior program do they drive full-size cars or do they have little cars <laughs> that's a good question i should have said that uh, i should have clarified so they we actually have it's a cart program it's a junior cart program it's a national program so then there are certain carts that fall into certain kind of uh they have regulations with those and the children have to wear their they have race suits and helmets and stuff so it's a national thing it's been at the SCCA Nationals for a while and uh, we have a program here and it's it's their way to get into it and our first junior car participant that we had she's now racing a full-size car from what you can tell what is it about racing that these racers come here for what what are they looking for it's a combination of a lot of things and and and, and well this is the only venue that we have here for safe racing or auto automotive sports right now on on Oahu and so everyone that's, you know, whether you're a, a gearhead that likes to race or it likes to tweaker, tweak on cars or tinker with things or it's a mechanical thing or it's for the camaraderie or whatever it is, but there's a combination of a little bit of everything. And we have engineers, we have doctors, we have teachers, we have everywhere in between. The stuff that you learn here, we've done driving schools before, it actually helps to make you more aware on the road. Make, it does kind of make you a better driver. All the important organizational and staffing details aside, the aspect of races with the highest cool factor are, of course, the cars. Yesterday, I watched several sports cars hit the track. A Mazda Miata, a yellow Corvette, and this black Dodge Challenger driven by a guy named Phoenix. I wanted to know more about the kinds of cars that come to their races, so I talked with SCCA Hawaii Region's solo autocross chair, Jennifer Parker. We have things from everyday drivers to fancy sports cars to trucks, pretty much everything in between, including pure race cars that are not street legal. They get towed in. Um, and it's just a very large range of types of vehicles that are four, four wheels and can pass our safety check, safety inspection. Your vehicle doesn't need to be registered with the state or safety check, but it does need to pass our technical inspection for safety purposes and ensure that there's no risk of rollover. For example, let's say an SUV, we, we do not allow SUVs because of their high center of gravity and, and potential for rollover. So we do have some limitations in what vehicles can participate, but in general, you can take your daily driver, two-seater, four-seater, and take it out for a test. One of the things I learned about the SCCA's races, just how inclusive and community-oriented the events are. Mia Valero is not just the organization's communication chair. She also gets behind the wheel and takes it to the course. She talked to me about her experience. What kind of car do you race? I actually switch around which cars I'm using. Uh, previously, I've used an S2000, Miata, Corvette, Hellcat. We like to switch it up. And from what I understand, racing is a family affair. Your brother is the car that I was able to put my recorder in. Got some cool sound for me. And from what I hear, your dad is a racer as well. So it's a family thing. It is absolutely a family thing. My dad is the one that really organizes it and gets us out here every day. He's the car guy. My brother and I are really just out here driving, but we have fun with it too. My dad has grown up around cars, not me in particular, but I'm happy that he's giving us the opportunity to kind of work our way into it as well. And what does your mom think about it? She doesn't let us use her car. <laughs> I imagine part of it's the adrenaline, and then I imagine part of it's the community as well. What's your favorite part of racing? For me, it's getting the most out of the car. I, I am not at all comfortable trying to find the limit when I'm driving on the street. I don't want to do that. I don't have any intention of doing that. So I like it here because it gives me a chance to see where the limit of the car is. It gives me a chance to push and try to gain new skills that I wouldn't otherwise typically be getting on my own. Right now, the SCCA is part of the present racing scene on the island. The future 
could be a new proposed dedicated racing venue planned for Kapolei, not far from the old Hawaii Raceway Park. Michael Kitchens is the CEO of BTT LLC, the company managing Circuit Hawaii, the racing complex aiming to open next year. Our goal is to build an international FIA Grade 3 facility. What that means is that we can have both national, international racing. You know, we can bring in series like, you know, uh, Trans Am, IndyCar, for invitational events, you know, just big events, drifting, Formula D, you know, anything that we can do, but not only racing, but also everything else, community events, you know. We've got an area that we're going to have set aside for hula protect practitioners, for example. So the idea of what we're trying to do now is change Hawaii for the better from an economic point of view, from an education point of view, uh, training. You know, we're really going to make an impact on the state. And I think that's really important because it's all about re regeneration, and it's also about sustainability. It's going to be one of the greenest racetracks on the planet, if not the greenest, sustainably, both from a LEED point of view and a well-certified point of view. And uh, the idea really, though, is that, you know, how do you fund a project like this? Do you want to build it off the backs of our local community? You know, if we just built a, a drag strip, you know, and used asphalt, you know, that would still cost millions of dollars. And our local community would have to pay, you know, $20, $30 just to come in to watch. And, our you know, our entrance... You know, they'd have to pay $200, $300 just to run. So the idea with our project is how do we make this thing sustainable? How do we make it viable for the long-term future? So everything that we're doing is designed to generate income, not only from our local community, of course, but from the tourism sector, you know, from high-end affluent tourism. Not a lot more tourism, but highly affluent tourism. You know, we're going to have, you know, different types of things going on as far as events, concerts, festivals. Yeah, you name it, you know, if we can hold it, there, we'll hold it there. And really what it does is it comes back to keeping entry, gate entry fees low, you know, for this, the local community. If you're Kama'aina, you're not going to be paying an arm and leg to come race. Do you have any plans to get into a car and, and test out that track when it's finished? Yeah, I better be the first one on yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> that was Michael Kitchens of Circuit Hawaii talking with our Russell Subiono. You can also hear from Joey Batista, Jen Parker, and Mia Valero from the SCCA Hawaii region. And that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we invite you to call in as we talk about getting our musicians and actors back before live audiences. What do you think? Have you already been out to a live show, or are you a little reluctant to get back out there? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.